Welcome to A Dying Podcast. As always, my name is Nils, and today I'm online. Well, I'm in Stockholm, but the person I'm speaking to is somewhere else, and that person is Star Vartan, that will soon get to introduce herself more properly. But I found you basically by reading one of your Medium articles. Not sure when it came out, but it's it's quite a while back I read it, and it was about how to survive the... Uh, uh, you know, climate change apocalypse that might just soon be hitting us all. So we might talk about that. But after hearing more about uh, about you, I understand you do a bunch of different things. So first off, welcome to a dying podcast, Sar. Thanks so much for having me. I'm I'm uh, really looking forward uh, to this conversation. See where it leads. So for for anyone not knowing who you are, or what you do, how would you? How would you describe who you are? Well, right now, uh, my focus is on uh, writing science and environment articles. I kind of um, started my career there after a brief stint as a geologist. Um, I actually have a degree in geology and worked as a geologist um, and realized pretty quickly that although I loved studying science, uh, I didn't want to do that for a living. Uh, so I turned to writing early on, and I knew I wanted to do science writing. Um, but I ca- had kind of a uh, an interesting stint in my 20s and early 30s where I didn't follow a straight path towards uh, doing science writing. I had a couple um, articles in local newspapers, and then I got an opportunity to work for a nonprofit uh, in animal rights. And um, I had worked in... Um, activism in college, and I thought this would be a really good opportunity to unite both my interests in um, science and environment and also animals. I, I grew up in um, the Hudson River Valley of New York State, and I was raised by my grandmother. And I'm an only child. Um, it was just my grandmother and myself. So we, uh, I spent a lot of time with the uh, animals in the woods around my house. Um, Lots and lots and lots of free time roaming around in the woods, building forts, um, playing games by myself. Sometimes I had friends over, but also a lot of time with um, all the dogs. We had about five or uh, six dogs at any one time, Dobermans and poodles, (laughs) so big and small. And uh, that really, uh, and our neighbors had um, chickens and uh, cows, and then there were all the animals to learn about in the woods. And my grandmother was a naturalist. So I learned about all those things growing up and had a real passion for animals and then became a vegetarian at 16. So when I was, you know, sort of in my early 20s, figuring out my career stuff, one of my first jobs was as an uh, animal rights writer. Uh, so that was interesting and fun. I realized that um, direct activism probably wasn't my forte. And the organization that I worked for was pretty intense. Um, and I, I believed in what they believed in, but the work, again, the work itself wasn't quite right for me. So I went from there and I um, worked for a man at HBO and we wrote screenplays. He was interested in somebody who had environmental background and animal background to help fill in the research and writing gaps. And he wrote screenplays for HBO. We worked there in uh, Midtown Manhattan, right across from Bryant Park, and also wrote screenplays for CBS and the Discovery Channel. And so we covered the... um, really interesting topics from the power grid 
because uh, the power grid in the United States has long been kind of in bad shape. It really needs a lot of um, support that it's not getting. Uh, logistical and also just new transformers and things like that. Um, so there's there's long been concern that this we could have a nationwide power grid collapse at some point. Uh, so we wrote basically a disaster film based on that idea. But you know, I did all the science and the background um, research to make it believable. And then we wrote for HBO uh, originally something we'd worked on with uh, Leo DiCaprio's people. Uh, piece called Final Hour, which eventually Leo DiCaprio made into a documentary. The person that I was working with, Paul, really wanted to do a fictional story. So there was sort of a dividing of the minds on the idea of where the project should go. And so we finished our fictional project uh, miniseries and uh, sold it to HBO, but it never got made because the person that I had worked with was actually. Uh, really interested in the idea that storytelling is incredibly important and that, um, you know, the myths and stories throughout human history have been the most important ways to make change. And so he didn't actually think, you know, documentary was as powerful a mechanism to tell the story. And, you know, you can disagree with that or not, but that was sort of his position. And then the last thing that we uh, wrote on also a fictional project was the first uh, people to live on Mars. And so I got to go to NASA down in D.C. and interview all kinds of scientists there to provide the background and um, interesting details about what it might be like to live on the red planet. So that was um, a really fun and interesting job. And I (laughs) realized doing that that I didn't want to work in Hollywood. That wasn't for me either. So it's a, I felt a little bit like, you know, Goldilocks going along, <laughs> trying these different things, realizing they weren't a very good fit uh, for me personally. And so then I um, had some just like jobs to make money while I started uh, my own website in October of 2005. Um, and it is called EcoChick, uh, E-C-O-C-H-I-C-K. And it is still up and running. Um October of 2005 was very early days, and in the in the internet, um, there was a bunch of environmental websites. They were mostly about peak oil, peak water, um, some pretty hardcore topics. And I wanted something that would be accessible to people, especially women. And I felt that the sites that were kind of online then were kind of uh, very not welcoming to women. Um, I would go in there as a science-educated woman and feel, you know, very talked down to, um, and it could be frustrating. So I started a website um, in October of '05, and right after that, the, I, the there was just a lot of attention around the environment, um, and it was very exciting. And so in um, 2008, I wrote a book based on the blog um, that got reviewed in the New York Times favorably, which was really exciting. And then the economy collapsed. And in the United States, so it was uh, it was not a time when anybody was then interested in doing anything environmental because they were worried about you know how they how they were going to pay their bills. So that was uh, disappointing and frustrating. But um, I kept you know working on the site because you know I could. Um, Websites are wonderful because you can kind of expand and contract them over time. 
And that changed as well. So over time, I um, became more interested in returning to my roots of covering science and environment. I was the eco chick for seven, eight years and did television um, appearances and did speaking and arranged parties and conferences and panel discussions and all that uh, fun stuff. But I I wanted to move on with my career. Um, So I decided to step back from EcoChick. And I also felt there was a lot of really wonderful websites out there now doing what I had set out to do. Other people sort of taking up that work of um, spreading environmental information, um, healthier living out into, you know, the world. Um, And now it's, I mean, it's a huge phenomenon. And I was one of the first people to do it, um, specifically covering ethical fashion and design, uh, starting in 2005. So, so that's exciting. It was great to be a part of that. Um, we're actually thinking now of changing up the site a little bit. Um, a woman, a young woman's come to me. She wants to write about ecofeminism specifically. So I think we're going to refresh the site and reboot it a little bit. We have great social media from the years and years that we were um, so popular. And so we're going to we're gonna get a little bit more radical, I think. And so that's an exciting project that'll probably be debuting in the next uh, three or four months. Um, sort of a, a reimagining of my, my old idea uh, from, <laughs> I don't even know, 12, 13 years ago now. Um, and so currently I'm writing as a freelance, um, writer for a variety of publications, CNN and Slate and Scientific American, National Geographic and Medium, where you found my article. So, um, I really love that actually. Um, I grew up on the East coast, as I was mentioning, I lived there for some time and I've lived all over the West coast now for the last four or five years as I've um, been a freelance science writer. So, I love that I've been able to see so much of the rest of the country. So that kind of lands me here in uh, Bainbridge Island, Washington, which is right across Puget Sound from Seattle. And uh, I live in the woods again. <laughs> wow. That's, I mean, there's, there's just so much here, right? There's so much stuff. And I think just to begin, begin with, I'm, I'm always, I always end up with a smile on, I, on my face when I hear sort of life stories and life journeys like this, because it's just so obvious that you've been following your instinct and your passion. And and when people do that, they get to have a really rich life of doing a lot of interesting, fascinating stuff. So just first off, thank you for, for taking me and the listeners on, on that journey. It's, uh, it's inspirational to say the least. And it also brings up so many, you know, I want to hear more about Ecofeminism, that's definitely something that, that uh, sort of piques my interest. Uh, and, you know, the stuff about uh, that you've looked into what it would be like living on Mars is also interesting. There's just so much stuff here. But I think the, the, the best way to maybe continue would be to ask, what, what is most interesting to you? Right now, what are you finding yourself being curious about? Where is your attention, you know, um, faced in in your life and in society as of now? Well, I think the thing that has tied almost all of my stories together that I've written in the last few years, and because I've been thinking about environmental issues for so long, I mean, I studied it in college, um, and I'm 42 now. So it's been a couple decades of really thinking you know, pretty hard about what um, humanity's impact is 
on the planet and then, you know, what the, what our responsibility is and then what, what, what kind of world we want. So the, the thing that I've been thinking about a lot is how human beings are going to live in the future. And, you know, that doesn't happen overnight. Um, we don't get to where we want to go um, by waving a magic wand or even, I would argue, you know, just coming up with technological fixes to, you know, obvious problems. I think we're going to need to do some, some deeper work and, and figure out how to work together. Um, I think that what's so interesting about human beings is if you understand the science of what makes us different from other animals, um, one of the most outstanding things is our capacity to work in these large groups and to use ideas, writing, and language to unite people around common causes. Um, of course, other animals can and do work very efficiently in groups, um, but they use usually you know, food getting or you know, protection or defense um, as ways to do that. And we do it because we're naturally social creatures and because we've developed this ability for language. Um, so it goes back to the guy I worked with at HBO, the writer who thought that storytelling was so incredibly important. And so I think that's um, going to be key to our being able to move forward. I think all human positive and negative endeavor has, has had storytelling at its core. And so I think the stories that we tell ourselves now about what our future could be and what we want our future to be are actually really, really important. So all of the science writing I do, um, some of it more creative, some of it like much more straight science uh, content includes, you know, sort of this idea of, you know, what are we doing now and what are the stories that we're telling and how do we understand our own future on the planet as well as the other, um, a life that, you know, we share the planet with. Uh, yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more on this. What really this brings up for me is both the insight that where we are in time today in society, over the past few years, it's become obvious the, the problems that uh, storytelling can create, you know, with fake news and filter bubbles and the tribalism that that has, has given rise to, uh, which is, is really creating a divide in many parts of, of society. And it's, you know, at the on the one hand, that is happening, but... To me, it's also obvious that, you know, to your point, that storytelling narrative myths uh, is the way forward. Uh, it's so obvious now that we've for quite some time lived in this age where um, there's not just a few huge media houses that re can reach anyone on the planet, but basically any individual could, with the right type of storytelling, reach anyone on the planet. And we've created this network we call the Internet, which is basically a network for storytelling. And now we have issues with that because of, of um, fake news and, and algorithmical filter bubbles. But it also shows the impact that storytelling has. So I think we're, to your point, we're waking up, or a lot of us are waking up to the fact that in order to, to fix <laughs> the mess that we're in and to create a better and brighter future has a lot to do with creating stories around that better and brighter future. It also brings up the, the point you made about this conflict you experienced around creating a documentary or or fictional storytelling around um, well the environmental problem 
Uh, obviously, both those narratives are needed. And I think there's a lot of interesting work in the fictional space uh, being done now with companies, you know, Netflix and and the Black Mirror is a great example of that. Of you know the media we consume, and there's a lot of media being consumed by people today. We you know we spend a lot of a lot of our lives just consuming increasing amounts of, uh, of media. So obviously, the narratives that we meet there. Uh, will impact our worldview, and in many cases, subconsciously. We won't even understand that, yeah, I, I like this show, but it's actually starting to impact the way I look at the world around me and the future and how I behave in life. So, yeah, that really brings, it makes that clear for me. Um, it also makes it clear why I'm doing this podcast. Uh-huh. <laughs> just, just another tiny example of, of trying to create narrative and sharing thoughts and information around to some extent, our shared future. But in your in your research and you know the stuff you're writing, the stuff you're thinking about, how do you envision that future? You, like you're saying, it won't happen overnight. But do you have do you have examples, ideas of like what in Star's mind would be a path forward for humanity? Understanding that's a fairly big question to ask. <laughs> well, yeah, of course, and I I think you know. We can always look at our past to give us probably a pretty good idea of what could happen in the future. Um, And our past has shown a real variety of ways that human beings have approached, um, you know, living together and functioning as, as a society. And in fact, I think one of the most interesting things about being alive now, and of course this is true of any time, but um, is, is, but I think it's especially amazing now because we have some parts of our um, humanity are so technologically advanced that we are actually living now um, on a planet where human beings are living as basically very nomadic and stone age people once lived. I mean, there are very few people doing that left, but there are still some, there's a lot of people at every step in between as you know, different countries around the world are developing at different rates. And then, you know, you have Silicon Valley and, you know, I've spent time right, you know, living in the Bay area before I came up to Seattle on people really living on the very furthest forward cusp of that. Um, And so what I like to sometimes just sit and realize what an incredible time it is to be alive. Um, Because, you know, of course that was true a hundred years ago, but we weren't, you know, as advanced as we are now. So we have people who are living all the different versions of what, how human beings can live um, right now on the planet, which is amazing. And also is, I think, really important for understanding where we might go because we have all the information we could possibly want, except what's going to happen next. You know, we don't have that, um, that prognostication um, of specifically what the next thing is going to be. So if we look at the past and we look at indeed how people are still living today around the world, um, we can see that, you know, people can um, live in harmony with their local environment. People can live in absolute horrible circumstances. Basically, you know, I'm thinking about like refugee camps where just basic supplies are brought in and, you know, people are, are miserable, but they are living there and they are 
living there sometimes for, you know, three, four, five, six, seven years. Human beings are super flexible and can endure a lot. But, you know, we, I think, want to, I think almost everybody would agree, create a world where the most people have um, the best lives that they can. So, you know, how, how do we do that? And I think that part of the answer is certainly coming up with stories that, that unite uh, human beings and bring them together. Um, it's, it's, and I will admit it's very, very difficult for me on some days to even wonder why we are bothering because there's obviously very many awful things happening and a lot of anger and frustration and a lot of, um, psychological distress as well. Just even among people who are incredibly privileged and have so much, um, in terms of, you know, all of these things we wish everyone could have healthcare and clean water and, you know, access to education. There's still a lot of very unhappy people. So I think it's also worth asking as we move into the future, you know, yes, of course, we want to provide all of these, you know, basic needs to people. And I I consider, you know, education and uh, a clean environment to be a basic need, um, housing, etc. But then also, if all of those, if a lot of those people are still miserable, you know, what's the point of um, bringing everybody up to that standard of living? Um, and that's where I think you can learn from places where people have less, but are happier. Um, and that's certainly the case in many places in the world. So I guess my large answer for the large question is that we need to think really intelligently and holistically about what is most important to human beings. Is it having three cars and being able to fly around the world um, six times a year? Or do we want to put our literal energy um, that we have into other places? So, you know, do we want to make sure that people have, we spend a lot more money on um, mental health instead of getting everyone on a plane? Um, And those are things that we can, we can decide to do. Because we're in charge and, you know, we can, we can set priorities. So I would say, I think that most people, uh, there's some people that want to travel. There's a lot of people that aren't that interested in travel. But everybody needs uh, to know that they're safe and cared for and are a part of a community. Um, you know, loneliness is an interesting epidemic that has come up in a lot of Western societies uh, in the last few decades, you know, and people are calling it a public health crisis. So how do we address those kind of crises um, in the same way we've addressed crises like, you know, making sure people can um, access higher education or even just get, you know, get through high school? Because um, we've done those things and we've done those things successfully. So I think, I think it's, I guess the, the, the holistic view is the important thing to me. It's not just, okay, we're just going to like work really hard to get everybody to, you know, making X amount of money. Or having um, X amount of healthcare, or you know, everyone has a place to live. Those things are great and important, but we have to remember that there's other important things that have to happen too. And I think that those things right now are not a priority, and that's why we're seeing so many of the issues, especially in the United States, with you know mass shootings, with uh, the loneliness epidemic, with a lot of suicide is a huge problem here. Um, the number of people, you know, men over the age of 50 just killing themselves 
is, is like the highest it's ever been, that means that those people don't feel like they are part of a community and that they're valuable. And so, of course they are, and of course there's a place for them, um, but they, they feel that there's not. And so, you know, those, I think, are the challenges to look at that will then inform the, where we go with some of the, some of the more, uh, I guess, simpler stuff in a way, which is just we're going to allocate more money to you know, making sure that everybody gets vaccinated or something like that. So I hope that makes sense for your big question. That's my, my big answer. <laughs> it does. That's, uh, that's an impressive answer, I must say. I know it's a big question, so it's hard to answer, but it makes total sense. And, uh, you know, me living and, and coming from Sweden, not having lived here all my life, but also having lived in the U.S. for, for quite some time. But Sweden is one of these countries where, you know, everything is highly developed. There's social security systems for everything, uh, obviously not everyone uh, gets full support in everything, but you know, if you look at the, the Maslow's needs hierarchy, if you're born in Sweden, you're, you're, you basically traveled up that ladder the first day you're born. You're, you're sort of safe. <laughs> you won't have to care that much about survival uh, and all of these things. And, and Sweden is one of these societies where a lot of people find themselves sort of at the highest point in that pyramid where where the focus, the only focus becomes self-actualization. So a lot of people have a fair, fairly good amount of money. And a lot of people reach that point where you sort of, you've been chasing that money and that career and that success for, for your most of your life. And then when you reach it, you understand the emptiness of it. <laughs> and then the, the, the loneliness uh, epidemic is, is really evident in, in this country. We have extremely high numbers of, of suicides. And I think we still have the highest number of one person households in the world. So people in this country live by themselves. And, and there's also, Sweden is not a religious country. So there's not that sense of community to be found in many places in society. So there's like, we live alone, we don't have community. And, um, We've reached a point where we know a lot of people know that money is not the answer to, to become happy in life. And, and that's sad in a way, but it's also, I feel, important because that's, to your point, that's how society sort of must evolve from here. If we keep, you know, feeding the fear of being alone by chasing more money and, and you know, being able to travel around the war, world and, and getting more stuff. So we're at the highest point of the hierarchy but we're actually starting to create problems at the lower points because if we keep doing that, obviously, you know, our climate won't be able to sustain that. And then all of a sudden we might find ourselves in a situation where the basic needs that we thought we had covered, you know, safety and protection and food and clean water and all of these things might just start, you know, uh, eroding <laughs> below our feet. So we feel we're on the top of things, but actually the foundation that we're standing on just might, uh, be breaking down because of the behavior and the, the consumption we're currently uh, doing. So it makes total sense that obviously we need a holistic approach because everything's connected. Uh, but we're also at a point in time where these things and, and uh, the way the transformation economy is rising, where we start consuming more things um, for our own personal development. Like I want to transform through everything I consume. So I, that's why I do yoga and meditation. And, and that's why I want to, you know, invest my time and money into stuff that builds me and the world around me. Uh, that, that to me, it seems to hold the answer. 
Um, and to your point, like, why should we even care when there are so much problems? But that's actually what's making us care, I would say. That's, we're seeking this equilibrium in energy to some extent. And if there's a lot of bad stuff happening and, uh, you know, a lot of drainage of energy or negative energy, whatever you want to call it, that's when people start waking up to, okay, we need to actually put in some effort here <laughs> to make sure this, this thing that we're part of just doesn't fall apart on top of us. Yeah. And I do think one of the most frustrating, I mean, this just frustrates me so much on regularly is that I do feel like people are reactive. Um, and I do think that probably at least some of the most negative effects of climate change are going to, I mean, they've begun already and they're going to get worse before people really rally around coming together to solve them. And that may, that may just be one of our weaknesses, or maybe that will be a turning point in the way that we approach problems in the future. You know, I'm sure you've seen the psychological articles or, you know, people that have spoken about this, but it's actually for most people, it's really hard to wrap your brain around the idea that, you know, your actions combined with all the actions of the people around you really can change the earth's climate. It's a very um, sort of abstract and such a large thing. And, you know, if you think about it, you know, when I get really upset about it, I think, well, you know, for thousands, tens of thousands of years, human beings have lived in like small groups of people Um, they've wandered around, they've had local weather and, you know, things that have happened to them, volcanoes, earthquakes, et cetera. But it's never been, it's always been very local. It's always been relatively small. And then, you know, they've had their various different stories and myths to explain or psychologically deal with those things. And when it, when you're talking about, you know, hard science and you're talking about the climate and you're talking about the planet and you understand that the planet is a small beautiful marble floating in space with nothingness and sort of, you know, no life around it. Um, it's like, it's a lot for our tiny little human brains to, to understand and then do anything about. And so, so the days I get most frustrated, I just try to remember that, you know, we're these animals that evolved on this planet and this is not the kind of thinking we really evolved to be able to do. And that's what we're doing right now is we are now (laughs) changing um, our consciousnesses and the consciousnesses of all the people on the planet to understand that we can and we are doing that. And that's a big lift. And so that it's our job to keep doing that lift and keep explaining and keep talking and keep storytelling around that, uh, the scientific information, because it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. And what are some of those uh, examples you see currently happening that's creating that lift? Um, I, you know, I think we, something, I, so I was raised by my grandmother and something she was always a big proponent of was word of mouth. And I actually think that's incredibly important. Um, even now when you think, oh, there's like, you know, 7 billion people and we've got to do like these campaigns and we've got to do these like big deal things. And yes, of course we should do those. Um, you know, governments should, you know, be talking about this stuff and movies should be talking about this stuff and the news should be talking about this stuff. Um, and that's all important. But I also think just having 
you know, those conversations face to face with other people uh, are, are very important. Um, <laughs> I mean, as a person who likes to see, you know, lots of people reading my articles or, you know, has written things that I hope lots of people will see, this is sort of, you know, the flip side of that and can feel very small. Um, but that's pretty much how everything has ever happened um, with human beings is, you know, you're talking to your neighbor, you're talking to your friend. And um, I think those, those conversations with each other now, especially when people do feel more disconnected um, and maybe more comfortable yelling at someone on the internet than like saying something with conviction to their friend or their neighbor um, is really important. And I think we've kind of lost the, the ability to do that because it's easy to talk on the internet and get out all of our feelings. Um, which I think in some ways is maybe a great thing that even though it can be toxic, it can be awful. Um, it can also be really relieving um, to see how many other people may agree with you or to, you know, really fight for an idea that you have in kind of a safe place. And as long as you're not, you know, being super abusive or something, I mean, you know, some of these arguments that I see, I think people are learning how to argue and how to, how to frame their own ideas and how to have discussions around really hard things with these basically quote unquote strangers on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Um, and again, I, I know, and I've experienced that negativity and the toxicity and the frustration and the anger. Um, but also we need a place to do those things and to have those conversations. And I hope that it, although <laughs> I feel like everybody thinks the opposite is happening, I think that, you know, over time, this will help us get better at having those face-to-face conversations because we'll know how to argue. I grew up arguing with my grandmother because that was, she was a New Yorker and, you know, she just loved a good discussion. She would play devil's advocate and she thought this was great for a kid's developing brain, right? So she would just take the opposite idea and just go with it. And she was a very brilliant woman. So she could, you know, really get in there and challenge me. Um, But I realized as I grew older that this is not something everyone has had and learning how to have difficult conversations and argue with somebody is not something you see much. I mean, in the U S it's like, you can go to your local, you know, town meetings and people will, you know, have arguments there. But I mean, where you have debates at school, but that's not really a big thing. Um, we need to learn how to speak about our, our disagreements. Um, and then, and have them be, uh, useful so that we don't just, you know, say, okay, well, we disagree, but well, okay, we disagree. Here's why we disagree. I understand why I disagree with you. Yeah. I don't, I'm not, I don't like your argument or I don't believe your argument, but I hear it. I understand it. Now what? And so I have this feeling that all this stuff going on with the difficulty of communicating online and the frustrations are actually maybe very, very important. Um, I would say that that actually everything that's going on makes total sense and is exactly what needs to be going on. So yeah. one thing that that I've so it's, it's funny actually my my first endeavor into entrepreneurship and into work life was starting a word of mouth marketing agency 15 years ago. Ah. <laughs> Very early into that field and and now hearing you speak about word of mouth it, it really sort of brings it back to me and I've been studying how um uh, humanity and technology has sort of been, you know, co-developing over, well, 
since since I was old enough to start understanding uh, how these things work. And it's I've seen so many examples of you know new technology entering our lives, and mm. that it's sort of like we're born again. Yep. We become kids. We don't know how to deal with this new reality. So you see, it, social media is a good example where you know. Most people don't even remember this, but in the early days of Facebook, like the behavior we had there was like you added everybody, anybody you had ever like even spoken to. And then we had all of these apps where we were throwing, we were throwing like pizza slices and sheep at each other. It was like legit Facebook apps. <laughs> I don't, don't know if you remember yeah. this, but that's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's the behavior of two year olds, right? We're just throwing stuff at each other, poking each other, the poke functionality. I mean, what, what's that about? <laughs> And then I've, I've done some work in VR and AR. And if you, if you put a person in a VR headset for the first time, their behavior is fascinating. You know, the first thing they'll do is they'll see a virtual object, let's say a coffee cup, and they'll be like, can I, can I pick it up? Just as a kid would be like with any type of object around this, like, can I touch this? Can I pick it up? And then once they have it in their hand and they're amazed, the next thing that most people do is like, can I throw it? <laughs> and then people in VR, you'll see them throwing stuff around. And, and, uh, and, you know, if you look at that behavior, it's really just a, a child exploring their surroundings, right? And now when you bring this up with how, how, how trolling and, and online hate is, uh, you know, it's obviously a problem, but to your point, it's, it's more like training, right? Like, oh, I can, I can post anything. I can express anything here and not care about the consequences. Okay, I'll do that as, you know, sort of as a kid that hasn't got any training in communication or the impact of their communication would do. So it, it makes sense where we're growing up with technology and this is just us being kids, <laughs> grown up kids uh, um, on the internet. And, and, you know, it will over time lead to us figuring out what the value is, how to deal with this reality that we're in, how to interact with each other online. And I'm sure it's going to, you know, improve our interaction offline as well. And also what, what it makes me think of is that so obviously I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of word of mouth since, since I, I started that 15 years ago, but I recently came to, on a rational level, I've known it, but emotionally also understand that, you know, we can't count on politicians or big corporations or Elon Musk or whoever to just deal with the issues that we have on this planet and, and, you know, as a species, um, the only real change will come about by many people changing their behavior. And that change travels through word of mouth. And there's even interesting research that came out in 2007. I, right now, I can't remember the name of the researchers, but they basically took the concept of six degrees of separation, how we're all connected. You know, a friend of a friend of a friend will know anyone on this planet uh, and show that that's true in, in terms of connection, but in terms of impact, uh, we are actually bound by three degrees of impact. So we impact each other uh, in three degrees. So basically, my behavior will impact my friend's friend's behavior, a person that I've never met. Uh, and, and it's true for all sorts of things like smoking, happiness, obesity, a lot of stuff that they basically showed was true and that they showed that like 12 years ago, I think. So that is also... Once again, it's the grassroots. We're all connected. It's a network, and we even have uh, you know a digital connection to everybody. And as we change our narrative, as we change our behavior, and since we impact the people around us and they impact us, that's how we drive real change. And you know, we have this 
deadline that's coming up and whether it's 10 years or 12 years, you know, nobody can know for sure, but it's starting to become painfully obvious that, you know, we are driving ourselves towards some sort of collapse, um, consciously or subconsciously. And, and the only way to overcome that is to either wake up now or just drive ourselves to that, you know, the, the point where there's no return and everything starts falling, really falling to pieces, like outside our window. And then we'll have to uh, make changes and adapt. But whenever the change happens, it can actually happen fast because we are actually connected. We have these global issues for more or less the first time in history, but also for the first time in history, we are connected, not to everyone, but to uh, you know, a majority of people on the planet today can, can receive information very, very quickly and sort of get on board for whatever solutions we come up with. So that, yeah, that just brings that up for me. Uh, uh, fascinating, fascinating. I hadn't thought about the fact that we're getting training in, in arguing um, through, <laughs> which also then would motivate that we shouldn't just ban stuff that we don't like on the internet. Uh, you know, we have a lot of issues with social media now that, you know, the big social media platforms don't really know how to deal with their issues that have now become apparent, whether it's just hate speech or fake news or individuals and organizations, you know, abusing the platforms to win elections or, or sell stuff. Um, but those pain points are important. They might feel like shit in the moment, but they are actually important. Just as an individual grows through the personal challenges that we have, that's how uh, the whole system, uh, that's how humanity grows too. So we're just, humanity is just one big kid <laughs> trying to become an adult, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've thought that exact thing for a long time and I hadn't thought about it in relationship to specifically technology in the ways that you pointed out, but it totally fits with my idea that like, I'm always trying to figure out like, are we, are we ninth graders? Are we 15, 16? Um, you know, like how old are we, uh, as a group at this point? <laughs> yeah. um, and it's somewhere around that age, right? I think we're, we're, we're not two years old anymore, but we're, we're not adults. No. It's, it feels like we're, you know, late teens, maybe. Hopefully. Well, because we, we went, we've, we've passed through that well, we haven't passed through it, but like the, the selfie era is coming to an end, hopefully, which would, you know, that would place ours, ours as, 13, 14, maybe when we were in that area. So yeah, maybe from 16 to, to 17, maybe that's where we are. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because, you know, even what you said about technology, I was thinking about fake news and just how, like, you know, when you're in high school, I remember that my, you know, one friend would make up a story that had like maybe a tiny basis in fact about another friend. And that would be, you know, the gossip for the week. And it would turn out, I mean, it would be very hurtful and awful. I mean, talk about fake news. Um, and that is what I think like, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 year old kids do. And then you kind of grow out of it. Um, and you do other, you know, terrible things as you get older. Um, and before you become an adult, but you know, it's just so funny because I'm like, oh yeah, fake news. That's the next, I mean, I'm, I'm almost wondering if you could plot, you know, using what happens in high school and then maybe college, like what's going to happen next for, for human beings on, you know, a larger scale, or at least, you know, on the internet <laughs> by looking at, you know, yeah. looking at that stuff. I mean, which at least, I mean, it does seem to me from your example that we are um, moving forward or, or growing up, I guess. 
Um, so, so that's hopeful. It's so funny to think of, yeah, all the poking and all the just like silliness of early days. And yeah, I remember that. I mean, it's, I I have to say being my age, it's been great because I got online at 16 when it was dial up and it was MS DOS in 1993 or 94. Um, and I was learning, you know, coding and the whole thing just to, you know, be a part of that. And so I wasn't a digital native. Um, but now I, it's also been fun to see this, how much has happened and how much has changed and what the changes have been and how people have reacted to things. So I feel like it's a very, it's very cool to be this age. Um, cause I didn't grow up with it, but I can also see the breadth of it over decades. Yeah. And I, I agree with your point. It would be really interesting to do like, uh, futuristic forecasting based on the analogy of, of <laughs> a, ki- a child growing up, basically. It would also be interesting to see if there's like, if you look d- down into data, like how, how does it sort of over how, how quickly do we as humanity on the internet or with technology move through that development the various stages, like how quickly do we become older? How, how fast do we go from being five-year-olds on the internet to being 14-year-olds? And what does that, it's probably exponentially because most things are these days, but uh, it would be interesting to sort of forecast like how, when will we actually be adult mm-hmm. on adults on the internet or with technology? And when will we, when will we be like 90 years old? And what will that be like? <laughs> and when we pass the human, you know, average lifespan what would what will that be like for for us there's a lot of interesting questions that, that pop up in yeah, my head right yeah. now yeah yeah and as somebody who i mean i was raised by my grandmother who was very um involved and vital and um just into life um i mean she was always excited about what was going to happen you know the next year um or you know 5 years from now or what's going to happen with you know space travel or what's going to happen with, you know, how we understand genetics or, you know, so I had this wonderful example and it's something that I feel like is rare among most people, um, of, of this culture, certainly in other cultures, people, um, spend more time with grandparents or, or even older relatives. Um, but I have this, this idea of older, um, life as being really exciting and fun and interesting. And yeah, there's definitely limitations kind of like when you're a kid, um, you know, there, you're, there's physical limitations and then there's, uh, maybe, you know, you don't feel so great some days. Um, but there's also a lot of joy and fun and excitement to be had. And I think that like, there's still a lot of fear of old age and, you know, hopefully we'll be lucky enough all of us to experience it and maybe experiencing it for a really long time. So we better get good at thinking about, um, you know, busting our expectations of what that can be. Definitely. And uh, there's another area that's connected to this that, you know, it's obvious that you're passionate about. And I want to, I want to make sure we have time to talk about that too, which is, humanity's relationship to nature. Where do you see it? Maybe it's self-explanatory, but it's just interesting to hear you speak of it. Uh, where do you see that we are today and, and what are some of the challenges that we face and, and where do you think we could or need to be headed in terms of, of, of that question? Yeah. So growing up outside so much, I mean, I, I was very, um, bookish as a kid. And so I would take my books with me into the woods and I would go to my forts and read, and I would spend time 
you know, organizing. Um, I also like to, to decorate my forts. Um, so, you know, I, I spent a lot of time outside in with animals. Um, and one of the things that I have noticed um, as an adult is that the natural world is so much more complex than human created spaces in general. Now, of course, you can go to a museum and um, there's tons of human created complexity there. But if you're just taking a walk in the regular old woods, the second growth woods on the East Coast, um, or, you know, the, the bigger second growth forests out here in Washington State, I mean, the layers of plants um, from the, you know, ground covers to the ferns and then to the giant cedar trees uh, is, is tremendous. And it actually, um, I can personally, like, feel a difference when I'm out in those spaces and the way my brain works and the way my eyes see, it's so much more invigorating and challenging and exciting. Like there's something that happens to me physically. Um, and, you know, I understand that this probably doesn't happen to everyone else because there's a, there's a blindness. And I don't love to use that terminology because I don't want to you know, denigrate anyone who has um, vision issues. Um, and it's not the same thing as that, but I'm not sure what other word to use. So hopefully I'm forgiven um, or at least understood. But there is some kind of um, blindness that a lot of people have that haven't spent much time outside. Um, and I see this even in my partner who, who I care for deeply and who grew up, you know, in Oregon, um, but had much less free time um, than me and not as much environmental education. I had both environmental education through my school, through my grandmother. I mean, my school had a school forest. It was a public school in New York, but we had a school forest. So I had a very unusual um, nature education growing up. And then I taught nature education to inner city kids and local kids. I've done a lot of environmental ed. And so a lot of people, and this happens with kids, and it's a great exercise, but you can do it with adults, is to take them out and say, okay, you know, how many different kinds of plants do you see? Or, you know, I'm a geologist formerly, you can do it with rocks, or you can do it with um, flowers if you're in a field, you know, and people will say two or three, and then you'll be like, okay, I'm going to give you five minutes. I'm going to time you. Here's my timer going off. I want you to get down on your hands and knees and count how many different plants you find. Or you do this with moss is great in the Northeast. Um, and the people, adults and kids, you know, they get down and they start looking. And it's really fun with kids because they'll be like, one, two, three, you know, adults will be quieter about it. But, you know, they'll all come back and be like, 27, you know, 32. I mean, in any like relatively green part of the world, you're going to find a lot of different types of plant life and in a forest, right? And uh, in five minutes, I mean, it's not, this isn't hard, um, but most people just, it's like a green mass. They're, they're, they're not trained and they're not able to see the different things that are, that are happening there um, and the different plants that are there. And, and when you don't know things are there, then how can you understand what's happening to them if, you know, 20% of them disappear or something, which of course is terrible for the ecosystem if you know science, but if you don't, if you're a, a person who doesn't know those things or is not connected to those things, it, it makes no actual difference in your world. And so what's happening right now is that we're losing species of insects, of plants, um, especially of the smaller creatures. You know, what we hear about when, you know, megafauna like rhinoceroses 
go extinct or are nearly there. But you know, every day we're losing. You know, I mean, we're we're in a mass extinction right now. But because so many of us have such poor nature education, we have no concept that it's happening because we don't see it. And it's really, really hard for human beings to conceptualize and understand things they can't see themselves. They haven't experienced themselves. Um, so my, my, my big hope for the future is that as part of um, learning to deal with these larger issues of climate change and tackling those, we actually really need to understand our local environments better. And that's why I almost think that we could switch from doing like, you know, foreign trips to other countries, you know, family vacation, which I, I grew up doing as well. I mean, I, I, part of the problem of doing that, we went to the Caribbean a lot, but instead of that, that you would spend that time learning something really interesting about the place that you live or, you know, within a couple hours, of the place that you live, right? So, so keeping that idea of exploration and excitement about things you don't know and going to a new place, but it, it becoming more of what's around you. Because at this point, <laughs> there's so few people who actually even understand what their local watershed is, you know, where the rivers are and how they fit together and how they run into, you know, larger rivers and then into the ocean or into a great lake of some kind or, or whatever. So I, I, it's, it's, and, and this, you know, you'll hear this from scientists too, like any scientist who studies, you know, scientists who study amphibians, they'll always say, oh, you know, I just interviewed someone for a National Geographic article on this subject on amphibians. And they're like, yeah, people always think there's just like one kind of salamander and there's like two kinds of frogs. <laughs> and of course, these people have dedicated their entire lives to, you know, studying um, a specific function in, you know, certain types of frogs, but they know all the frogs or they know all the amphibians um, because that's what they study. But there's such ignorance of it among everyone else. And that is um, very new. I mean, that is unprecedented in humanity. There was never a time up until the last hundred years where such large numbers of people would know so little about the world, the physical world and the natural world around them. It would just be like impossible to farm or hunt or gather or do any of those things if you didn't have very, very intimate knowledge of the place that you lived. And so I think that this is just one of those like weird little growing pains, a little like burp or space where there's all this other stuff been happening that we had to focus on, but we really need to get back to understanding um, the natural world because it's imperative for our survival, um, not on a like necessarily we're going to go out and gather our food, although <laughs> it could come to that. We might. Um, <laughs> but, but, but in other ways. So um, I think that this is like a actually incredibly important thing. And so, you know, I tell people, yeah, you know, get the kids out there and kids are great at this and they usually really enjoy it. And I've done environmental education with kids and kids are easy. Um, if you're excited and you make something exciting, they'll be excited about it. Right. But I also think it's actually really important for adults to do it too, to get out there either, you know, with their kids or on their own and to, you know, consider it something that, you know, I know people who never, uh, learn to swim growing up. And so they're learning to swim as adults as the same kind of thing. Okay. I'm going to learn about the natural life in my local environment. And usually once people get into it, you know, some people get into it, like they'll start learning about mushrooms because they want to gather mushrooms or they start learning about edible plants because they're, they like to garden. 
um, once they get in one direction or another, and of course it's all connected, then all of a sudden they start learning about everything. Um, so you really only need to have that one little in. And so whatever your interest is, if it's food or if it's, um, you know, being out on the water, you like doing water sports. Well, you know, what are the, what are the local um, waterways that feed the, the, the body of water that you're in? And then how are they connected to, um, you know, underground streams or other sources of water or mountain top glaciers and what's happening to those glaciers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Once you start down your path, it's, it's really easy to keep going. Yeah. And uh, this brings uh, what this brings up for me is I think there's potentially a way uh, and a natural development from where we are now, where we've been living in this uh, hyper self-focused society. You know, we're all really focused on ourselves and our own journey and our own success and all of these things. And, and now with the shift, when when you have a lot of people being uh, up there where self-actualization is what we spend most of our time and, and money on, you know, I need to figure out who I am and what I want to do in life and how I function and, and I want to improve myself constantly. I think there are two trends that could actually get us back into the understanding of nature, not knowing that it will work like that. But it, it, I just see a potential pattern here that... On the one hand, you have the, the transformation economy where people are going deeper into themselves with uh, not all across the world yet, obviously, but in certain, certain parts, it's really evident. Uh, yoga, meditation, uh, you know, the rise of mindfulness, all of these things where the exercise you just described of getting on your knees and trying to find plants, I would say it's probably a fairly good mindfulness exercise. Mm. Uh, it will probably put you into a more or less flow state because you can't focus on anything else. And it will create uh, a connection to nature in that sort of by default. And I also think there's a potential other trend that could take us there. And that's actually the ego-focused aspect of technological development, where we're still very focused on ourselves, right? It started with, with social media, where all of a sudden... I could have an online identity and I could put numbers on that identity in terms of followers and likes and reactions and, and you know, friends, how many people are reacting to my stuff and, and I could quantify that. And then that has turned into the self-quantification uh, movement where we have all of these trackers. You know, we have our Fitbits and we're tracking our workout and a lot of companies, you know, you're tracking your productivity. There's a lot of tracking going on. And now we've sort of faced into where we have all of these trackers, you know, smart homes. We have our Alexas and Google homes and a lot of stuff in the home is being tracked, like the temperature, the, you know, the air quality stuff is being tracked, right? And the next natural step would be, you know, yeah, I want to track, you know, the, the air quality in my garden or the water quality around my house. And by adding... Uh, tracking that basically becomes a narrative that we're interested in because it's it's you know I'm tracking not only me but also my direct environment and that should increase the focus and the interest in my direct environment so so maybe both the sort of mindfulness trend and the the tracking of technology could lead us back into getting in, back in touch with nature but you know in a 2.0 kind of manner where we're using where we are and the trends that are happening in society to, to re start reconnecting and start, you know, understanding and learning again about how nature works and, and, and actually being able to see beyond that blindness that, that we've had. I think to your point about the blindness, 
it's the same kind of blindness that we've had for for ourselves and other people around us. You know, we walk through our day and we don't remember all the faces we see and we don't really care about the emotional lives of others. But now um, mental health issues and the emotional of lives of ourselves and others are becoming sort of more in the news and, and people are more openly speaking about uh, seeking advice for therapists and there are more online apps and services for actually working ourselves and there are probably more self-help books sold than ever before. That could, it could sort of mimic that trend that we start actually identifying issues and problems uh, through the technological development that we are, uh, you know, that we're pushing forward. So I, <laughs> Hearing you speak about this, I actually get more hope <laughs> in a weird way about the future. <laughs> oh, good. Well, so, someday, I mean, I, I don't want, I, I think it's actually really important to be very honest. And so, I mean, you know, I definitely get really frustrated and upset um, some days. So, you know, I don't want to say that that, you know, that I'm, that I'm a total Pollyanna and I only see the positives of, um, what's going to happen. I mean, my biggest concern at this point is I think that, um, this is a conversation I had, um, with another science writer, Aaron Biba on Twitter the other day. Um, cause I was feeling particularly bad and I was just like, what's the point? I can't even like, what's the point of keeping humanity around? Like, what are we even doing? We're, we're going to put all this work into the situation, um, to save people and it's never going to work anyway. I mean, I was, it was a really like bad day. And I was just like, this just seems like such a huge and hopeless problem. And, you know, she said, I, you know, I hear you. And, but you know, the, the, it's, it, we have to keep working on this because, because what will most likely happen if we don't is that the very wealthiest people who have the most already will, you know, inculcate themselves and protect themselves and they'll be okay. And a lot of people who have less will suffer. And we see that already when, you know, Bangladesh experiences a terrible um, tropical storm. And it's always the very poorest people who are the ones who, you know, are dying and being injured. And so that's what's going to happen on a, a global scale, um, is that the people with the least are going to be hurt the most. And that strikes me like deep in my soul is just so incredibly unfair. And yes, life is unfair and life is difficult for poor people as it is um, now, but it just, that, that a problem caused by the wealthiest people, um, you know, the wealthiest countries is going to most detrimentally impact those with the least. That's just wrong to me. And so that's worth, you know, fighting against. So it's like sometimes when you're upset, it's good to remind yourself of, you know, who you're fighting for and um, why you care still. <laughs> um, and, and, and it was, you know, this is something she said to me and I was like, you're right. <laughs> um, and I needed to hear that today. And that's actually really important um, because we, you know, we have a job as people who do have the ability to make change and impact people and, and do work that could have a positive effect to do that work. Um, because otherwise, we're basically participating and hurting other people who have less. And that is not, that's not right. You know? So that helps, helps me. Um, and, and I think in the process of, hopefully, in the process of making sure that um, the people with the least don't get um, hurt, 
that we are able to help, you know, all, all people and, and other life on earth. I mean, that's something I always like to say is that, you know, this isn't just about human beings. Um, I think other life on earth has intrinsic value. Um, and that, you know, we, we don't need to have a quote unquote reason to want to save, um, wolves or, you know, an endangered kind of chipmunk. Uh, They deserve to live here because they live here too. And and we're not the only life on earth. And I think that's also worth fighting for, um, those animals and, and the plants that can't, you know, have, that don't have a voice, Um, So we have, you know, some of us have to be voices for them as well. So some of us are good voices for human beings. Uh, Some of us are good voices for animals and plants. And um, on a sort of spiritual side of the conversation, um, I will say that, you know, I had an experience, the experience of um, when I was a little girl being um, abused by my mother. And she then abandoned me to my grandmother, which was a very lucky stroke of, stroke of life for me because my grandmother was this amazing person as I've described. But part of the reason that I think that I grew up to be a healthy person was certainly my grandmother. Um, But the other part of it was spending so much time outdoors in nature and listening to and really feeling and being with um, non-human life. And I think that was incredibly healing and incredibly important. And it's something a lot of kids don't get who have, you know, more or less trauma than me and a lot of a- adults don't get. And I still consider it part of my health care to spend a lot of time outside. And I, I, it's like non-negotiable. Um, so, you know, I think that all of this stuff is incredibly important for individuals, like one single person, as well as these like really large questions. And that, um, you know fighting for ourselves and our own health and fighting for other people who have less than us are all really good places to start when you're feeling really crappy about it. <laughs> you know? I couldn't agree more. And, and I think that's a great uh, end point for this uh, conversation. There's obviously so much more I want to talk about, uh, but perhaps we'll just do another, uh, another episode about that later. Uh, thank you so much for, for sharing your journey and, and, and your wisdom. It brought up a lot of new ideas for me and it also helped me connect things in a new way. So, uh, I'm always fascinated by how much I get, uh, from having conversations, uh, with amazing individuals like yourself. So, Thank you so much for Star. If if people want to read more of your work or find you or connect in any way, where where can they best do that? I would say go through my website, which is Starvartan, S-T-A-R-R-E-V-A-R-T-A-N.com, or I'm at the Curious Human on Twitter at the Curious Human. Lovely. So thank you. And to you guys listening, thank you as always for being part of this. Feel free to reach out with any responses, emotions, thoughts, ideas, whatever. I think it's, um, it's important for people who care and who have ideas or just, you know, a sense that we want to do something to connect and and start doing something from wherever we are uh, in the world. So feel free to reach out as always. And I will see you all next week.